welcome to our May Kaleidoscope from the Kaleidoscope team in the British Journal of Psychiatry. If you haven't been here before, we come to you live from Radio City Bexley, at least I do. And we're going to talk about some of the research we have in our Kaleidoscope column in the BJ Psych. We're going to talk about content from June, so even before subscribers get it. And there are links within the Modsley Learning website if you want to see the core papers themselves that we're going to talk about. So we've got a couple of papers that we are going to talk to you today about, and the first is on the good life and what that means. So the older I get, the happier I am for little things, so things like sunshine. It's really, really sunny here in Bexley at the moment. It's like Southern California all the time. Spending good time with my good friends here and watching Lawrence Fox get trashed at this week's London mayoral election. I am a camping face man. So we're going to talk about a thing called years of good life or yoga. I'm going to call it yoga. I don't know if other people call it yoga. And one of the things in healthcare is we often measure outcomes like mortality. When do you die? People are interested in stuff like that, but it's not the only way to measure your life and its happiness. So yoga has been defined as survival in an empowered condition which sounds a bit of an NHS management speak to me. But the point is about things that are more than just mortality. So poverty, physical health, cognitive well-being, your life satisfaction. And with yoga, you get a number, a number that tells you how many years of good life you have. So I'm going to pass Dr. Albertson. Are you surviving in an empowered condition? And what is your yoga? It depends on the day, doesn't it? Um, I bring to you this paper, which was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, um, because I like that it is a big idea. Uh, it's oriented around the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So they've kind of come together to set up this, they call it a roadmap, um, and it's a call for global action and the things that we need to do to ensure sort of peace and prosperity for all of us. So I feel like we can all get on board with that. Um, but the rub is, Complicated ideas that are trying to address wicked problems are notoriously difficult to assess. And so progress or stalling are, are kind of really hard to identify in this complex machinery. So the goal of creating a singular metric um, is one way of thinking about what is the ultimate goal of sustainable development. So currently we use these kind of economic measures, um, occasionally the environmental ones as well. But really, if we imagine the purpose of sustainable development, it's actually that we want good life for human beings to come out the end of this, right? And so what they attempt to do is create a metric. Now, as you say, it's a single number. So I think we can go ahead and, and feel confident that we're going to start poking holes in it right away. But the, the combination of data are largely collected across a series of nations already. And the argument is made that in fact, we should encourage everyone to use these data because what it does is go beyond just life expectancy because what good is it if we're all living sort of Mad Max Thunderdome style, right? And instead we are empowered, we are healthy, we are able to make choices and enjoy things. Um, and so what they propose is a metric that could be used um, within context of individual nations, but could be directly comparable and could identify subpopulations, so genders, whatever. And uh, you could get this measure, years of good life. And by evaluating how it's changed across time, you could, as a government, um, be able to identify areas where maybe you'd like to invest resource um, or, or identify a deficit that you could, you could theoretically um, work to, to correct. Or 
you could use it in order to evaluate the worthiness of potential development projects, right? So instead of politicians coming along with like vanity projects, if you make them not only say how much it'll cost, how it's gonna make all of our lives totally better, if you make them say how it will address sustained well-being in human, in human beings across the country um, and the world, it makes a real difference in the way that we think about these things and we evaluate these things. Um, so I think we should maybe hash apart the details, come back around and talk about what is the spirit of this, what is the hope of this, and how might it change the way we think about things in the future. That sounds like a cue for Dan and Suki to hash across the details. What did you make of the paper? Is it too simplistic? Uh, I, would, I mean, you, if you were being slightly uh, critical, you'd kind of think, how can you, with the best will in the world, reduce kind of human experience to one number. And one of the things that we sometimes worry about is that it, just taking it into a slightly different area is we're interested in seeing whether interventions will improve outcomes for people within a particular design. And often in that you're encouraged in, this, in the interest of purity to say in advance, we're gonna write down this outcome will change and you will put down you, and you pick and you're, you're discouraged from having lots of numbers. You pick one that you think is particularly interesting. And so you might say, you know, we've got an interest in psychosis. We're going to be looking at that a little bit later. And you might think as an intervention from that, we need a metric that encompasses the, the, the experience of kind of symptoms. And you might say, we've got, a, we've got a measure that picks out six or seven different bits of experience that is abnormal in patients who might suffer from schizophrenia and actually we're going to see a change in that and if there's a certain change let's say 25 percent 40 percent then we're going to say that that's enough to make a difference and one of the things that dan has written very eloquently about at least in two or three papers is to say if you just take one number and say this is going to be our metric of change you throw away so much data that actually it becomes quite problematic and one of the consequences of that might be that at the moment, if you look at a bunch of different interventions, that you see that many of them show quite show promise in kind of small, less robust design, but actually become quite problematic once you, you scale them up and look at a large size. So if you've got this problem that you're reducing a lot of heterogeneity to one number, and then you're measure, using that as an outcome, then the, the fact that your that data reduction is means that you're throwing away a lot of the information could potentially be problematic. Now, on the, on the health side, it's clear that you need, it's helpful to have some way of making decisions around resource, a bit like you were saying, if you're planning or you're having an intervention about where do you, resources are finite, you have to make the decision on, on some measure. So actually having a number in that sense, I think is very useful. But against that, I think you need to have in the back of your mind that that is always going to be a simplistic measure. You're probably going to need some finer measures just to be able to supplement that. So that was my uh, two pence worth on that. Yeah, I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you on, on all of those points. <laughs> the, <laughs> I think my, my problem with this made initially I went into reading this paper excitedly thinking okay this is exciting because it's a composite measure so it gives you a single univariate measurement 
that's supposed to be a proxy for uh, good quality life. Um, and I thought, well, that's quite a tough order. So then I went and, and dug into it. And I think the thing that's perhaps striking about it is its lack of ambition. So I don't know how it will be used as an outcome measure. And my reason for saying that is that actually when you look at the, it's, it's, there are four kind of components to this. And the components that to qualify as having one good year, yeah, in that year you have to meet four different thresholds um, essentially, and one of them is you know being able to memorize four words, and the other one is to be able to stand up from sitting. Um, and whilst I know you have to set a threshold somewhere, that strikes me as a very low threshold for a quality year. You know, being able to stand from a chair, memorize a few numbers, and it's always easy to pick holes in these things because I guess the point about it is it's not the absolute numbers that count, right? It doesn't matter what the absolute yoggles in the UK, US, and Europe are. What matters is comparison, presumably comparison with uh, low middle income countries versus countries that are, you know, wealthier and have generally high yoggle. So I guess as a comparative measure, it strikes me as really interesting and a nice way of operationalizing, you know, a quality year of life, but, you know, versus any other measure. But I'm also minded that, you know, I went to a seminar on, on, on qualities the other day. And I was staggered to discover just how much effort and complexity there is behind the notion of equality, you know, quality adjusted life here. It's a really complex topic that takes in a whole bunch of different sort of statistical, mathematical and uh, health economic fields. So it just, it, it seems to me that my, that my last criticism of it being a bit too basic is perhaps a bit unfair because I don't have to struggle with the complexities of trying to define a metric. Um, so it, it, overall, you know, I mean, I, I guess if it's used as a relative measure, I'm interested. If it's used as an absolute measure, it's kind of unambitious. Being able to stand up, rememorize a few words does not, for me, constitute a quality year. Although, to be honest, my standard's not much higher than that. Being able to stand up and memorize a few names is probably not a bad baseline. You've had worse years than that. I've had worse years than that. So you say yoggle, I say yoggle. Let's call the whole thing off. Well, there's a question on that, right? So there's Tony Bergson has posted that here. So given that depression rates in developed countries are slightly higher, can we say that yoggle, we're sticking with yoggle, is in fact higher? Any comment on that? Depression rates in developed countries. I would argue that actually the data aren't as nuanced as that. So as it's set up, there are thresholds to meet. And as Dan mentioned, they are pretty low thresholds. They are uh, sort of, you have to be above absolute poverty. You have to have, um, we would argue perhaps baseline cognitive functioning. Um, life satisfaction measures, of course, are, are maybe where this would come into play. But as it currently stands, I'm not sure that it would be able to pick up on that detail. I mean, guys, correct me, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it's not, um, it is not perfect, nor is it deeply sensitive. But with that said, actually, it can still tell us things, right? And I think we have to be careful to not let perfect be the enemy of the good here. Because the reality is that if we look at this data, we can see that um, although women have much higher lifespans than men in almost all developed countries, they have lower yoga, and it can be directly sort of pinpointed to the rubbish that comes along with being a woman. And you can use this to say, right, what's happening? So they, they for instance, um, took a look at the last 20 years of data for different subpopulations in different countries. And they were able to show that in India, um, while women's 
ultimate lifespan have gone up three years, their yogal has gone up by eight years, and they can attribute that to um, um, kind of elevation out of poverty. So it can give us information about, I almost think of them as like systemic levers to pull, sort of if you're looking to run, run a country and figure out where to get the most bang for your buck, where could you, where could you channel those resources? Um, but, but with that said, what I really like about it is the fact that if we all decided to adopt, maybe not this, maybe something like this, whatever, the idea that governments, that politicians, that people who spend money on behalf of people would be forced to be answering to the impact it would have on those people, that could be a game changer. And so when I look at this, I go, okay, fine, maybe we need to up the cognitive threshold or oh, this, oh, that. But what if? What if we lived in a world where the people who ran our countries had to respond on behalf of the people and it had to be transparent and backed up with data? And I like that. So there's a follow-on question from, from that uh, in the chat. What about your belief system profoundly in impacting your perception of your yogals? Is that what's happening with men? Are they just happier in life? And, and again, would that have cultural differences? Does that impact the validity of it? How much does your perception impact it, or does that make any difference to one's yoga? Is it too objective? So to go back to Dan's point, you can stand up or sit down. That's not perceptual. That's objective marker. That's hardcore. So that's a solid data point there. Well, they've got they, the, the subjective well-being is captured there, but it's captured as essentially one item Likert scale. Are you... You know, satisfied, somewhat satisfied, very satisfied or dissatisfied with your, you know, so the subjective well-being component there, relating to the previous question that, that you read out from the chat, Derek, is, you know, if, if one argues that um, a higher prevalence of depression will mean or will correlate reliably with lower subjective well-being scores, then you could ex expect that to subtract a percentage or a fractional proportion off of the yogles for that country if it was prevalent enough but it that's that's about the limit as i can see dawn i don't know what your views were but that's about the limit of the sensitivity of this by the same token if you increase the basic um i can't remember the name of the metric they use but it's essentially like 5.5 us dollars is the minimum threshold for poverty so if you increase it to 5.6 us dollars suddenly you get a load more yogles well, you might get a load more yogles if subjective well-being also went up at the same time. And so I, I don't know how sensitive it is to intervention. I think that's, a, again, it's a, the, the real power of it, I think, is relative measure rather than absolute measure. I don't think it's got much utility as a, an absolute measurement, but relatively, I think it's pretty useful. Um, and but then the question about how sensitive it is to intervention and change all depends on whether or not you buy these kind of four component measures and whether they're influenceable is that a word? What's the proper word I'm looking for here? <laughs> Perfectly prominent word. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> whether they're modifiable in, you know, whether those interventions modify one of those four factors, I guess, is really the question about how sensitive it is to change. And there's a comment from Aisha, which I think is probably more of a comment than a question too, that comes on to the end of it, that resilience levels may be higher in poorer countries. They just have to get on with life and cannot afford to do no work. And data may not be as accurate in those countries. People may be nearly invisible. And in higher developed countries, people can afford to be mentally ill. I want to challenge that. And that inactivity can cause greater levels of depression. But again, maybe it comes back to the issue. So this has gone back to me about the generalizability about this so between different cultures and countries? 
they yeah. would argue that it is in fact oh no sorry dan i was gonna say they would argue that it can be but i think dan you've got you've got a solid kind of uh nick in that armor no no not at all no i think but you could argue that in terms of <clears throat> if you were looking for a transcultural measure of subjective well-being then presumably the subjective well-being component of the yogal is um is sufficiently general enough for it to be to have within population validity but again that's a, it's a really good comment because we, we won't know until we try it out and again it's about relative versus absolute figures um but yeah no, i know i think that's a really good that's a really good point to make and it'd be interesting to see how this metric performs with respect to intervention whether or not it's sensitive to changes that we would hope would or we would speculate might influence those measures so can I take that back to you, Don, maybe to close this paper before we move on to the second one? I mean, what's the impetus for anyone to take this on? What's the driver for it? How much leverage has, has this got now? Even if we agree if it's a yogal or a yogal, who's going who's gonna to go with it? Ah, sorry, button clicking. So I think this is the real thing, right? So I'm thinking about this in a much more global way. I'm literally going, how can we change the world? How can we make it better for everybody on the planet? And if you look at it from a sort of a change management perspective. Uh, you force structural change and then you're unrelenting with it until people adjust. And, and in my mind, um, if we could get enough people behind the idea and we could agree that imperfect, an imperfect measure is at least still a presence at the table, right, for, for human well-being and, and essentially demand this, um, particularly from the countries that are already collecting the data. You know, it's, it's just like an extra calculation. Um, for me, the value would only be if it was adopted worldwide, if it could perhaps somehow get traction as embedded within the, the SDG, the Sustainable Development Goals. And, you know, and in that way become something that is, um, well, much like we talked about last month, actually, that we need to embed things in our systems, a requirement to report on it, a requirement to um, include it in your plans for, for research and development. So um, I think we have to all hold hands and jump. And I'll conclude then with this comment by Adrian about the time lag between intervention and impact makes it difficult to imagine holding governments into account. Well, that's that's a common challenge for us. That goes back to my vote for Camp Binface argument at the beginning, I have to say. But yeah, there's going to be a challenge there in holding people accountable. So we're going to move us on to the second paper that we're going to talk through, and we're going to go to something more biological and brain. We're going to talk about antipsychotics and their physical impact on people's brains. So all medications, people always are concerned about side effects. Anything you're going to take, there's going to be some payoff between what gains you get from the medication versus can it cause you any harms. And with antipsychotics in particular, the older ones had particular problems around movement problems, and the newer ones often have metabolic problems such as weight gain. But one consistent concern over the years has been might antipsychotics adversely impact your brain volume, the amount of brain you have in your skull? And there's some data to support this, that the higher the dose of antipsychotic you're on, the more we see sometimes adverse brain changes. But it's actually a really, really difficult thing to study. And one of the reasons is, what are you comparing to? Because we seldom have people with psychosis who are not on antipsychotics. So how do you know it's the medication causing it or maybe it's just the natural part of a psychotic illness. So it's a really, really important question, but it's really, really hard to test. So Suki, you're gonna tell us about a paper that addresses this issue. This is a paper by Pat McGorry in Australia. So he's unusual in being a guy who's really uh, 
been at the forefront of this idea that if you want to manage psychosis, then it needs to be managed very early. So he's kind of started off this field of early intention in psychosis, really making that link between kind of adolescent development and problems at that stage, which may then go on to develop psychotic-like experiences, then psychosis, and some of those people may then develop schizophrenia further down the line. So it comes from a very respectable place. And it's a, quite an unusual design. So as you said, Derek, that a lot of brain imaging studies have shown that if you take a, a group of patients and you take a, a group of healthy or kind of control sub subjects, then you can see that the patients with, with psychotic illness will have smaller brain volumes. And if you look really carefully, you might identify that they're a little bit smaller in specific areas. And previous research has shown that if you look at how much reduction there is in some of those brain areas, it might correlate with how much medication you've taken. Now, the problem with it correlating with how much medication you've taken is clearly that the, the longer your period of illness, uh, that the longer you're likely to have been on medication. So what these guys do is take people who are unmedicated uh, with coming up to their service in, with an early uh, psychotic illness, and they split them into two groups, one of whom get uh, some antipsychotic medication, either risperidone or paliperidone, and they can change the dose of that for three months. And the other group is randomized and they get a placebo pill, so no medication, and both groups get quite an intensive psychosocial intervention. So they're not that they're not, both of them are getting this quite strong psychological and social intervention, and half of them are getting some antipsychotic medication and the other half are not, and the clinicians are blinded as to what happens. And what they've done is they've done brain scans on these the structure of their brain at the baseline before they start the medication. And they've looked at that again at three months and then again at one year. And what they see is that within one brain, there is in brain volume in the putamen, patients who are taking the antipsychotic. Patients who are not taking the antipsychotic but just having the psychosocial intervention, in those three months, you see a decrease in that brain region. So models that they're looking at is to say that if you don't treat psychotic illness, uh, at least with medication, then maybe some consequent brain volume decrement. If you treat it, then you get this enhanced effect on brain volume. And they had a third control group, which was just healthy folk and twice, just to make sure that there was nothing in their scanner or their imaging technique that just gave some change over that period in time. And reassuringly, what they found in those healthy control folk was that actually there was no change in their brain volume. The additional thing they looked at was actually compared, they, uh, a bit like Dawn's yoga, they looked at the BPRS, a kind of uh, a measurement of psychosis symptoms, and they reported that amount of increase in this pertainment uh, volume actually correlated with the reduction 
in some of the positive psychotic symptoms. So linking those two things together to say it looks like symptoms will go down as this brain volume will go up. Now, interestingly, I can hear you asking what happens after the 12 month period. And actually at the 12 month period, difference is no longer between the, between the it looks like it's a short-term effect. So what that leaves you with is that's a really nice, clean design, which is very unusual, it, particularly the element of having a placebo. Imagine scanning folk between two periods over three months, but actually giving them a placebo every day. So you're taking out one small part of the variance, which is related to whatever the anticipation might be of getting better with the, with the medication. And we know that placebos can be quite strong. Uh, what does it tell you? Well, at face value, it tells you at least one of the brain structures is increased volume and seems to be correlated with action in symptoms over a short period of time. It doesn't look like a long-lasting uh, impact. And this is really in the context of what, what does brain volume change mean? And there's a few areas where people have talk about this is, is really in terms of adolescent development. If you, if you scan uh, children as they're getting older, paradoxically, adolescence, you actually begin to see, you see growth in volume, and then above us, you start seeing decrement in volume. And one of the things that people have been very interested in is how can it be that reduction in that brain volume is actually associated with enhanced function because that late adolescent is the period when your kind of impulse control starts kind of kicking in a little bit and your flexibility improves. So how does that work? That argument has largely been around that you're pruning areas that you're not using. A paper in the Journal of Neuroscience, Rachel Gers, Pennsylvania, who's looked at that in a group of adolescents showed Actually, the grey matter volume does go down late adolescent period. But if you look at the grey matter density, about the thickness of the, the metric that you're measuring, that that actually increases during that. So it's a really, it's an interesting find. I think it's, it's looking for an explanation because the imaging can only tell you so much. The fact that these regions that change the pallidum linked to the dopaminergic systems and they feed into these kind of frontal and striatal loops that are thought to be problematic in psychotic illness. It adds an extra kind of free sort of interest that it links into what we know. So there seems to be a phase validity with this in terms of the brain regions involved. I mean, it's an interesting point you make. So it's, it's and to the title of today's webinar, it's it, the size matters. So, but, but it also, also feels that it's certainly not causing loss of brain volume, which is a big concern for people when they take these medications. Don, Dan, have you got thoughts on this paper? Uh, primarily, I think the, 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 the thing that struck me most about it is it's, uh, it's so hard to recruit to studies like this. Um, so it's a spectacular achievement that they managed to get people who were antipsychotic, naive, to, uh, but, but symptomatic, to participate in a study like that. And I think the, the other thing that really impressed me about it, well, neither do I impress, but I think the result that sticks out is that I think it's at three months that you show hypertrophy in the pallidum or the right pallidum for 
the patients who are medicated, but you see a decrement uh, in GMV or gray matter volume in the same region for the patients that were on the placebo. And it's nice that they have the healthy controls in the middle so that you can see what happens when there is no, you know, putative disease mechanism happening. So I think that was really, that was really impressive. I think what I'm really excited by though is I'm hoping that they recorded some functional measure as well when they did the, 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 the scans. And I'm hoping there's a paper to follow up which shows some, you know, changes and normalization or changes of, um, well, yeah, just some changes in functional connectivity as a function of, uh, of being in the placebo or the, the medication group. So fingers crossed they did that and that there's a paper coming soon. Well, funny, we did a different paper by that group in the previous month's kaleidoscopes. I think it was in April. So it feels to me that this, I, I don't know, but it feels to me this group have quite a bit of data coming out in this. So I suspect we're going to see more on it. Tom, what were your thoughts on the paper? You know, I loved it because it was clean. It was, like you said, had face validity. So it felt quite intuitive. It felt like it was kind of, you know, closing down some questions that had been open for quite some time. I, I want mechanism. So Yay, big, small, all those things. But tell me, how does it work? Show me what, what exactly is going on and, and how, how can we use it as a leverage point? For me, that's what it ultimately is always about. So it's great. And it definitely will be one of those sort of, it cements, it cements our understanding uh, kind of papers. But yeah, I'm looking for the next one. I, I want to see what happens in the next, the next bit. So what would be like, what would you guys expect to be the next do you know what I mean? If you're that lab, what, what is the next piece that you close up? There's, there's a couple of things. I the recruitment thing was interesting. I looked at the flow for people they looked at, and they, they recruit 1,200 people. And out of that, only 90 made the cut into their study. So it's just, and all of, the, all of those 1,200 had psychotic uh, Illness. The second thing that they point out is this study is just a subset of a larger study, which looks like its main purpose is to see medication is helpful in early psychotic phase versus just having a placebo and the uh, kind of psychological intervention, psychosocial intervention. And I think the, the, the paper from that is actually published. And I think uh, I won't spoil it by telling you what the answer is. You can look that up reference for it in, the, in this paper. The answer about mechanism, I think there are, you're really talking about the limitation of, of MRI technique. You can look at structure, you can look at changes in structure. In, in the animals, if you give uh, uh, psychotics, including some of the ones that you, you can see uh, neuronal pr proliferation, you can see increases in, in BDNF and antioxidant kind of change. So that the kind of bottom end of market and the between the, kind of the patients and the brain change, what you see in rodents. But given the fact that we have you know, access to animal imaging, we can actually, it should be possible to link those two things together. The bigger question I think is about, is around works that actually we know that one region changing is very unlikely to have an effect on kind of something as heterogeneous and symptoms of people. So they're really interested in is a bit like the question 
down to as route functional networks, your question is, what does that increase in size represent for, the, for those frontal loops that do organize a whole bunch of different behavior? So I think that is another question you can answer. So, I mean, like all good science, what you're looking for is it will generate more questions than the answers that you have. But it's certainly been interesting to have a very short period of time to show increase in, you know, size, which is correlated with, you know, a positive change in symptoms and the fact that it's a relatively short, relatively short period because 12 weeks for brain changes is a lot. And then open up these news for look both down at a finer grain, more granular kind of cellular. And also for what does this mean address? Very serious there, Derek. Well, for me, I'm thinking I'd like to see some of the longer term data come out with time as well to see. Oh, I found it was interesting. The other paper, the one we reported on last month, at 12 months, those not on medication were beginning to show an increase in negative symptoms compared to those on medication. And I think it's a really brave study and, and really needed to have a study of people not on medication because some people don't want to be on medication. Some people find it difficult to tolerate the side effects. So I think I think it's really interesting to have that. And there's also a, a wider move and discussion about how long do we need to have people on antipsychotics. So I, I think it'll be longer term data will be really, really interesting for me. And, and I think it's really nice if, if, if you're watching this and you take the medication or you found your friends who do, or you're prescribing the medication, I, I think it's a really important study for taking some heart in that not, not only does it not seem to, the medication cause brain loss, although I take Suki's point about the fact that size is not everything, it actually seems neuroprotective. So there's something really quite heartening and it answers a question that's really been challenging for people to address. So I think on that point, I'm gonna wrap things up for this month. We hope you've enjoyed it. We wish you all many yogles ahead and we hope to see you again next month. Thank you for joining us. Bye. Take care.